Hey everybody, this is Ellen Weatherford. And Christian Weatherford. And we're here with Just the Zoo of Us, your favorite animal review podcast. What you laughing about, Ellen? I'm laughing at the fact that we just spent five minutes watching the dog do that thing where she's using her nose to try to make a comfy nest in the blankets and she wouldn't stop for like five minutes. It's the equivalent of watching someone turn a USB cable <laughs> over about 25 times. <laughs> Bless this dog. <laughs> this is your favorite animal review podcast where we rate and review your favorite animal species out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. Puppy, you're not on this one, but no. you're on thin ice. <laughs> you're next on the chopping block. <laughs> Domestic dog. <laughs> we are not zoological experts. We do a lot of research for the show to make sure we're giving you really good information from trustworthy sources. A real quick announcement I wanted to make that we are going to be doing another live show as part of the Cala Vida Arts Festival in Green Cove Springs. So if you live near that area, come check us out. It is a free show, by the way. It is provided for y'all at no charge. Just uh, sign up on the Eventbrite page and come check us out. It should be lots of fun. It will be lots of fun, Christian. Not should be. It will be. Scenic Green Cove Springs, Florida. It's beautiful, yeah. Yes. That's our hometown, by the way. Nope. It is your hometown. <laughs> <laughs> well, Christian, you are up first this week, and you have our democratically elected mm-hmm. poll winner for this episode, which is... Coming in just a skosh ahead of the blue ringed octopus, I believe it was. It was literally a one-vote victory. It was just razor thin. Yep. So the winner, the common cuttlefish. Hmm. Scientific name, Sepia officinalis. That sounds good. That's a good name. I don't know if I pronounced it right, but here we go. You know, is it spelled S-E-P-I-A? It is. I think some people pronounce that sepia. Like the color? Yes. Ah, that makes sense for some things I have to say then. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I don't know for sure. I've just, that's how I pronounce it, sepia. Sure. So, like you said, this species came to us from our Facebook and Twitter poll. But previously, it was also submitted by Kyle Rauch. I think just generally as a cuttlefish submission. Yeah. So, there are many species of cuttlefish. This one is the common cuttlefish. But this one, I'm getting information from Animal Diversity Web at animaldiversity.org, as well as species-identification.org to help me with some of the Family tree stuff, and also the Monterey Bay Aquarium, found at MontereyBayAquarium.org. And lastly, the Octopus News Magazine online. There's an Octopus News Magazine. Yes. I need to subscribe, (laughs) and I need push notifications. I need to know when there's Octopus News. (laughs) They they can be found at T-O-N-M-O.com, Tonmo.com, basically. Love it. So, jumping right into it. Cuttlefish. Let's talk about how big they are. If you had to take a guess, how big? This is maybe unfair because I have seen them. This particular species? Yes. Oh, really? We saw them in the aquarium. I didn't realize that was that exact species. I'm pretty sure it was. They're four inches. Well, 
maybe those were young because these can get up to the mantle length of this species is 45 centimeters long or 17.7 inches. Oh, that's huge. <laughs> yeah. The ones we saw in the aquarium were teeny. Yeah, so I'm wondering if they were young or a different species. But anyway, they can weigh up to four kilograms or 8.8 pounds. That's pretty big. Yeah. These are found natively in the eastern North Atlantic throughout the English Channel and south into the Mediterranean Sea. They've been recorded along the west coast of Africa as far south as South Africa. So you might notice none of the Americas were listed there. They just don't play with us? Yeah. no, no. Um, Not interested. Yeah, no, no, none of this species over here. And I think I read somewhere that in general there are no cuttlefish in this part of the Atlantic. Oh, that's yeah. a bummer. Uh, in terms of what part of the ocean? They're found from the subtidal waters to depths up to 200 meters deep or 656 feet. They do seasonal migrations. So they spend the spring and summer inshore and they go to deeper waters during autumn and winter. So like during the the autumn and winter, the temperature of the deeper areas is more constant. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. They belong to the taxonomic family Sepiaidae also known as the true cuttlefishes. Oh, excuse <laughs> me. Are we gatekeeping cuttlefish now? <laughs> I think they say this uh, because the Sepiada order that they belong to has cuttlefish and also bobtail squid. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So I think there are some squid that kind of resemble cuttlefish, but aren't actually cuttlefish. And of course, they belong to the cephalopoda class that also contains octopus, squid, and the nautilus. Okay. So they're all one big, happy, tentacly family. Yeah. Oh, well, class, but yes. Sure. <laughs> Be like that, I guess. I will. <clears throat> So jumping right into our classification system, starting with effectiveness, this is physical traits. How good are they with those type of things? I had to deliberate a little bit on this one. As you should, to be fair. And honestly, it was basically trying to decide between almost perfect and perfect. What? <laughs> <laughs> I settled on perfect with a score of 10 out of 10. Oh, we'll settle for perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's dive right into it. So first of all, their arms and tentacles. Mm -hmm. Arms and tentacles. Yes. Okay. So this guy has eight arms and two tentacles, and all of them have suckers. So the arms are what you'll usually see, whereas they have two much longer tentacles that are usually retracted into the into the body. Oh, really? Yes. And those only come out when they're hunting. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I'll talk a little bit more about that in the next category. Sure. Um, but to talk about those real quick, so I, I mentioned they are stored inside the body or the mantle. They're almost spring-loaded. So when they do use them, they shoot forward very quickly. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Wow. So that comes in useful. Next thing I want to talk about is their ability to change color. So pretty common among the cephalopods, I think, but very impressive with the cuttlefishes. So they can change color and texture of their skin using structures called chromatophores, lucifores, and iridophores. We talked about these with the chameleon, the oh. veiled chameleon, yeah. Well, so chromatophores are just cells that mm -hmm. contain pigmentation. Yeah, yeah. So what it's doing is it's, it's taking these structures and making some bigger and some smaller, mm -hmm. and the different ones have different pigments in them, so resulting in different hues and patterns because it can control different areas of its skin. It doesn't have to be all one thing. So yeah, it has a very impressive ability to change the color and texture of its skin. And again, that will come into play into its <laughs> ingenuity. It also has like many 
cephalopods the ability to expel ink. Ah, that's very good. Yes. And next up, their eyesight is very well developed. Oh, I wouldn't have expected that. Yeah. They have a cuddle bone that they use for buoyancy. Um, this is this is interesting because, uh, you know, octopus and squid don't really have any kind of structure like this, but they, they use this cuddle bone to control their buoyancy. Um, from my, when I understand, it somehow lets them control a ratio of gas to liquid in that part of their body. Oh. Yeah. It, now, when you say that it's a bone, what do you mean by that? Is it like a calcified structure? Is it is there marrow inside of it? No, uh, no marrow. So it doesn't function the same way as one of like a bone in our body would. It's not there to fortify anything. It's just used as a buoyancy device. So this is what you buy in the store, right? The cuddle bone? Yes. And I was going to touch on that a little later. Okay. They have water jet propulsion, basically. Whoa. <laughs> where they take in water and then expel it to move very quickly when they, when they want to. Got a scoot. But other than that, their normal form of mobility are two fins that run the length of their bodies. So they do like a little rippling effect when they're using them and they can move in any direction using those fins. It's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. Uh, they have a beak that lets them eat small fish, crustaceans, and other cuttlefish. Oh, yes. hello. Cannibals. Oh, <laughs> sure. Go for it. It must be hidden way up in there. Yeah, it's uh, similar to how an octopus or a squid, where it's kind of up in the mantle, hidden by the arms and tentacles. Wow. So, meant to, so they, they grab their prey and pull them in towards it. How terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they have so many babies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, females can carry 150 to 4,000 eggs. <laughs> they are deposited onto uh, seaweed and rocky bottoms. The young hatch after 30 to 90 days at about 50 millimeters long, two inches. Mm. A little teeny. Just so little. And they're pretty much born ready to eat small prey. Here we go. <laughs> Precocious <clears throat> youngsters. Now, here's the part that was kind of giving me pause as to what score to give them for effectiveness. Is their short lifespan? They live only one to two years. Oh! In both the wild and captivity. Wow! They usually die after reproducing. Oh my gosh! Yep. Huh? They're they're here for a good time, not a long time. <laughs> and it's also the way they they die that kind of uh, made me think about it. So I can't confirm that this particular species does this, but I found sources that say most cuttlefish will die in this manner. So many cuttlefish and cephalopods in general will enter a state of senescence. Senescence? Yes. Okay. Um, the adjective senescent means something that is elderly. Oh, okay. Yes. All right. I see that etymology at work. <laughs> and uh, so when, when this happens, they will start to rot away and lose their eyesight. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, in the wild, this results in not being able to hunt very well and or being easily eaten by a predator. Sure. <laughs> in captivity, I guess this is just part of having a, a cuttlefish in your aquarium or such. So that in captivity, owners will often choose to euthanize cuttlefish once they reach this stage Aww. rather than let them suffer. Oh. Yeah. That's it, interesting. You don't usually hear about wildlife having like such... Such exaggerated traits of aging that's uh -huh. like, 
well, I don't know. I guess you don't normally hear about wildlife just like surviving to the point where old age becomes their cause of death, right? Right, right. So in the wild, this usually results in them being eaten by something else (laughs) before they get the chance to actually rot away to death. Yeah. Whereas in captivity, that's not necessarily the case. Gross. Right. Often the, the humane option is to euthanize them when they get to that stage. Yeah, that sounds fair. Yeah. So that's the part that kind of made me think about it. Although I guess when you think about it, it really is just the, what many life forms go through when they get to old age, it's just rapidly uh, shortened time period. <laughs> they are not here to play games. Nope. They're here to get the job done and they have just condensed everything that they need to do in yeah. a short amount of time. They're all about efficiency now. Yeah. So it takes a ton of energy for them to reproduce. So basically what they do is they, they, they hatch. Their main concerns are growing and eating as much as they can, reproducing and then dying. I would argue that maybe 4,000 babies is too many. <laughs> and that maybe if they considered scaling that back a little bit, maybe they wouldn't have to immediately die after having their 4,000 babies. <laughs> so it kind of works out, especially when you consider their interactions with us, which I'll touch on a little later. Ooh, interesting. So, uh, full 10 out of 10 for effectiveness. Sure. Moving on to ingenuity. Yeah. These are things like intelligence, tool use, clever tactics, that sort of thing. Again, full 10 out of 10. Ooh, clutch move. So, uh, cuttlefish in general, very intelligent along with octopus in general, I think. Mm -hmm. The biggest thing I wanted to give them points for is their ability to communicate with each other. And the way they achieve communication is with changing the color and texture of their skin and also the way they're moving through the water and also how they hold their arms and tentacles. Oh, so they're using body language mm-hmm. and <laughs> I was going to say nonverbal cues, <laughs> but like what else are they like as opposed to verbal? <laughs> <laughs> First, I was imagining them saying something like squirt, squirt. <laughs> yeah, you know how cuttlefish just say their name to yeah. each other? Their English common name to each other? Yeah. Cuddle, cuddle. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Dang it. Uh, next point I wanted to give them is around their courtship of each other. So like I mentioned, they use color changing to communicate. But in this case, they also use that as a way to indicate a readiness to mate. Aww. Yeah, yeah. So males and females will have different colors and textures to use to indicate that. They're getting all gussied up. Right. They're getting <laughs> they're getting dolled up for a night out on the town. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's the courtship. But then they also kind of have to compete. I think the case is usually there are more males than there are females. So the males have to kind of not really duke it out. They're they're usually just intimidating each other. So it's usually the the, the biggest the biggest one wins. Sure. And then they have to uh, practice something called mate guarding. This is mine. <laughs> so I won't go into the dirty details, but because of the way they reproduce, after they are done reproducing, it is possible for another male to come along and mess that up. <laughs> oh, I see. I see where you're going. Yes. Uh, so after they're done reproducing, that they will continue to guard that mate to make sure it takes, basically. Wow. <laughs> Huh. Yeah. Um, Have you seen the video of the cuttlefish? It's a large male cuttlefish who is guarding his female mate. Mm-hmm. Do you know where I'm going with this? Have yeah, you seen this? I've seen this story and I meant to look it up to see if it was this species. So I'm going to do that right now if you don't mind. Well, while you're looking that up, the large male cuttlefish is guarding 
his female cuttlefish and a smaller male cuttlefish sees this going on and decides that he wants to go for a more stealthy, more deception-based tactic to steal the mate. So he actually shrinks himself like he he like pulls his tentacles and fins inward mm-hmm. to make himself smaller and he changes the color of his body and changes the way he moves to look like a female so that the larger male sees him thinks he's a female and is like okay you're cool you can come hang out and lets the male like into his little it's like right underneath him right it's yeah like under his yeah. body So the smaller male comes in disguised as a female, gets underneath the larger male, and then once he's under there with the female, then he's like, hey, I'm actually a male, (laughs) and, you know, like, assumes the male form again, and the female is like, ooh, you're real clever, and she mates with him. Yeah, yeah. And they talked about how the female is just as willing to go along with one of these males that has used disguise because that's just she she's just as likely to be like, "Ooh, you seem smart. I want to have smart cuttlefish babies." <laughs> yeah. So she'll mate with both of them because they've both had sort of a an interesting successful mating strategy, right? Like one of them is just big and strong, so maybe like either way, the babies are either going to be big and strong or they're going to be really smart. Right. So she's like, "This is a win-win. I'm going to mate with both of them." Yeah, yeah. It's really really cool. That kind of goes along with their intelligence factor. Uh, so speaking of eggs, uh, once the eggs are deposited, they'll do a thing where they use their ink and disguise them. Disguise the yes, eggs? To, to camouflage them. What? Yeah. I've never heard this before. So they'll look like little grapes, actually. Oh, <laughs> I love that. Right? <laughs> I've never heard that before in my life, but that is the best thing I've ever heard. Yeah. Wow. Now, here's the next interesting part. So, it's thought that their eyes are one of the first things to become fully developed while they're in the egg. So, there's they're able they're, it's thought that they can see everything going on outside the egg um early on in development. So, this is given the thought that they show a preference for prey that they see while in the eggs. Whoa. Yeah. So if they see a lot of crabs and such while they're in the egg, they're going to have a preference for eating crabs. I guess because it's just something that they've become familiar with. Like yeah. they've like imprinted on. Right. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's really neat. Yeah, for sure. And then uh, something that I like to always talk about is them being an ambush predator. Yes. So I kind of hinted at this earlier. So what they do is they use their color changing ability to camouflage themselves They'll get close to their prey and they'll shoot out those long tentacles to grab them and pull them in. It's really, really fast. This is surprisingly similar to the chameleon mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm seeing way more parallels between the cuttlefish and the chameleon than I think I expected. <laughs> and uh, another thing I've kind of seen on documentaries is I think some cuttlefish will use their color changing to hypnotize prey right Mm, yes i have seen (laughs) this this is really cool like they're not just changing their whole body to one color but they're changing their body to be black and white stripe yes and then the stripes move down the body in an in a sort of like a wave pattern yeah and the prey like stares at it and can't quite parse what it's looking at (laughs) and it gets really really confused and then it just completely freezes 
right? Mm-hmm. And and they just stand still and stare at the cuttlefish like they just can't look away. <laughs> yeah. It's very creepy and weird, but it is also super cool. Yeah, so they're able to do that because of the fine control they have over that changing color, but also with how fast they can do it. Yeah, that is insane, too, because even with something like the chameleon, you know, they don't have the ability to change just one part of their body, Mm -hmm. right? It's like, it's a response that the whole body has, and they can't do it quickly, right? It takes like a couple minutes for the whole body to change the color. Hmm. But so, like, for the cuttlefish to be able to just have, like, very, very precise control over those, like, this entire network of cells over their whole body... It's just crazy to watch, mm-hmm, and sure. that and that they know that they can trick their prey like that, right? Yeah. They, like they have to know how the mind of their prey works. Mm-hmm, so like mm-hmm. they're using mental manipulation. I love it. Yeah, they, they're there's some there's some smarties. Out oh there. yeah, definitely. And then finally, the ability to ink escape. There you go. So they'll you know of course like many animals like this they'll they'll expel a bunch of ink into the water to confuse the potential predators for them to get away. Smoke bomb. Basically, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, on to our last category, aesthetics. Again, a full 10 out of 10. Oh, it's a perfect score. Oh, it's been a while, hasn't it? Yeah, I think uh, I felt like this one deserved it. It joins the ranks of the Jaguar. (laughs) It's up in the Hall of Fame now. Yes. Way to go, Cuttlefish. You did it. So my first thing on on aesthetics, of course, is color. So they're generally a mottled black or brown color. However, the adults during breeding season... Their dorsal surface of the mantle is a zebra stripe pattern. Love that. Yeah. That's so good. And like we mentioned, they can change into other colors as well. And of course, they can do it very quickly to create flashing stripes and pattern effects. My next thing on their aesthetics is their eyes. They're like goat's eyes. They're better. (laughs) Because their pupils are (laughs) (laughs) W-shaped. Dang it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so the the peoples are w, W-shaped. I think they're very interesting to look at. Really quick. Hi. This is Ellen. Two days after we recorded this episode, I went rogue and did some research on cuttlefish pupils, and I wanted to share it with you guys because I thought you would like it too. The cuttlefish pupil in normal or brightly lit conditions is in fact shaped like the letter W, but like a rounded W, like the number three turned on its side. However, when it's really dark, the pupils open up and become circular. So I was really curious about why they do that. Turns out the function of the shape is pretty complicated, but I found a good study on it called the W-shaped pupil in cuttlefish, sepia officinalis, functions for improving horizontal vision by Lydia Mothker, Roger Hanlon, Jonas Hackinson, and Dan Eric Nilsson. My deepest apologies for any mispronunciations. What this study reports is that the reason the cuttlefish's pupil is shaped like a W is because in the water, the deeper you go, the more light is scattered by the water, meaning it gets darker. So this means that within the cuttlefish's field of view, there's more light at the top and less light at the 
bottom, giving it a pretty wide range of light conditions to have to process all at once. So because the pupil is shaped with broader horizontal bands at the bottom and these narrow vertical slit-shaped points at the top, it lets in less light from above and more light from below, allowing it to see details more evenly in the light gradient of the sea. So when everything is dark because it's nighttime, it no longer needs that funky shape because everything is dark. So it opens up the whole pupil to let in all of the light. I thought that was pretty cool. Anyway, back to the episode. Very aesthetic, though. <laughs> Finally, for aesthetics, the rippling effect of their fans. I'm so always good. very impressed with that, it seems. So good. <laughs> no, yeah, it is good because it looks like a ribbon mm-hmm. along the outside of the body. It's really nice. Yeah, I mean, and in their case, it's on both sides. So it's very nice. Excellent. A little miscellaneous info to wrap up the cuttlefish. Their conservation status is of least concern on the IUCN. What a relief. So they're close to overfishing in some regions, but it's thought to be that they're doing fine based on how wide their range is and also the measurement of the fishing yields because they're a popular animal to be fished out of the ocean. Okay. The Greek and Latin word for the cuttlefish's brown ink, it's brown by the way, Okay. <laughs> is sepia. Oh, oh, which now refers to the color. Wow. Okay. In English. <laughs> okay. So the okay. So it's the other way around. The ink wasn't named after the color. The color right. was named after the ink. Yeah. Yeah. That's my understanding of it, at least. That's cool. And its ink was once used extensively for drawing and writing. Also, uh, it's currently used for homeopathic medicine, dyes, and paints. Okay. And finally, as we mentioned earlier, the use of its cuttlebone. So, in pet stores, you can get cuddle bones for pet birds, and their use is for a source of calcium. It keeps the beaks in good health and provides some entertainment for the bird. Now, I've known about these things for a long time. I knew they were called cuddle bones, but I never made the connection that they were part of a cuttlefish. Yeah, I worked (laughs) at a pet store for like two years and never made that connection. Yeah. I guess because I assumed that... The cuttlefish being an invertebrate, I assumed that it just had no bones in its whole body. Right. So, like, the word bone didn't trigger any sort of association for me for yeah. the cuttlefish. Yeah. It's very bizarre that I never thought about it. But also, like, it was one of those things that they were so commonplace that I never gave the name two thoughts, right? Like, I, I never even mm-hmm. stopped to think about, hmm, I wonder why they call it this. It was just, like, such a common you know like you don't sit there and think "Mm, i wonder why they call this a pencil you know like it's just such a common thing that you don't really think about it but yeah keeping the birds supplied with cuddle bones was really important so we saw cuttlefish you must not remember this but we saw cuttlefish years ago like a really long time ago Mm -hmm. and i probably still have a video of it on my facebook because i remember being so I uh, I myself was hypnotized by them because of the ripply fins like you talked about and how it's really interesting because when you're at the aquarium, you're going through and you're seeing all the fish that are swimming around. But what seems really interesting about the cuttlefish to me was how they stay completely stationary in the water. Mm -hmm. Not like other fish that are kind of constantly moving. They're like, levitating and staying in just one place yeah in the water and and they're doing it with those fins right so the fins are rippling and they're they look like they should be moving Mm -hmm. but they're just staying in one spot and so what i really enjoyed was that i walked up to go look at them and i was 
staring very intently at them. And one of them was looking back at me and I kind of moved like a couple feet over and it turned to follow me. It was watching me. It, It was very intently staying completely still watching me and following me. I also do this sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) But you don't get interaction like that with other fish, right? Right, right. Like, well, I mean, they're not a fish. But you don't get interaction like that with other animals at the aquarium, I find, usually, because, you know, they're just not that interested in you, right? But this one seemed really genuinely curious about what was going on outside of the tank. Mm -hmm. And that was, I guess that speaks a lot to how you talk about they have really good eyesight, right? Like they can see you outside of the tank and they're also really smart. So they're wondering what you're doing and they're like, hmm, what is this? Right. (laughs) I was just very delighted by the way that they seemed fascinated by, they seemed as fascinated by me as I was by them. Yeah, yeah. And I I, I do remember them as just, I, I I also remember them being very small. Yeah. Oh, and per the Monterey Bay Aquarium, uh, they have raised several hatches of this species at their aquarium. Oh, yeah. that's good. So it's very likely that the ones we saw were just very young. Yeah, maybe they were just beebs. Mm-hmm. I remember there being a bunch of them, but they were very little, like less than five inches long. They yeah. Were really small, like yeah. smaller than my hand. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Oh, how good. (laughs) Now I hope that we get to see some more with like a deeper appreciation for, because I knew about them. Like I knew about them in the sense that I knew what they were Mm -hmm. and I knew that they were kind of squid-like and that was it. Sure. I didn't know all this other cool stuff that they were capable of. Yeah, they're very interesting. And um, I think it also adds another kind of level of wonder yeah. When, you know, we would have to cross the entire Atlantic Ocean to see these things otherwise, like outside of captivity. Yeah. I think that a lot of people assume that invertebrates are not smart because they don't, their nervous system hasn't developed the same way that vertebrates have, you Mm -hmm. know? So I think a lot of people assume that invertebrates are not as intellectually capable as vertebrates, but you've got different types of octopus and cephalopods that are actually really, really smart. Oh, yeah. So it's, it seems so otherworldly right they seem like aliens Mm -hmm. that have come from space to show us the way yeah so very capable very very smart very cute that (laughs) checks all of our boxes that meets all of our criteria great job babe thank you you're welcome For this week's episode, we would really like to thank our patrons on Patreon for helping us make this show possible and helping us grow. This week, we'd like to thank Ashley Tucker, Brianna Feinberg, Jacob Jones, Christina Sanders, Megan Clark, and the Jungle Gym Queen. Thanks, y'all. Thank you, everyone. All right. So that was my perfect mollusk. What do you got, baby? I have a less perfect mollusk. Womp womp. (laughs) (laughs) I have this week, for your listening pleasure, the giant African land snail. All right. Often abbreviated to gals. <laughs> Often? Yeah. <laughs> like, I looked it up. Oh. They call it, ga- a lot of people call it gals. Huh. Yeah. So, the scientific name is Acatina fulica. How pretty. Yeah. So, actually, that. Uh, that name Akatina comes from the Greek word for agate, like the, the jewel. Yeah, the, the it's gem, like, I, I think it's say. like a gem, something yeah. like that. Yeah, but meant to 
describe the pattern of their like the just the way they look i guess okay the species was submitted by megan inez clark as well as dalton weeks all right thanks y'all i think probably inspired by the picture that's been going around on the internet of like a person holding one of these it's big snail right huge snail like gary from spongebob bigger what <laughs> well if you think of how like spongebob is the size of like i'm assuming to be a kitchen sponge <laughs> gary's probably really not that big yeah you're right if he fits on pineapple yeah he's probably he's probably little i'm getting my information from animal diversity web and i also found a couple of interesting little studies that i'll cite later when they come up all right so to introduce you to the giant African land snail as the name would imply this is an absolute unit of a snail <laughs> This one in particular is up to 20 centimeters or eight inches long. Wow. Yeah. Eight inches of snail. Man, can you imagine that slime trail? It's so much. (laughs) It's so much gunk. So they're native to eastern coastal areas of Africa, but they have been introduced to countries all over the world where it can be found as an invasive species. Yeah. Don't worry. I'll talk about that at the end. First, I got to hype it up. I got to give it its appreciation first, and then I got to bring you back down to reality. Yeah, then tear it down. (laughs) Their taxonomic family is Akatinidae. Some relatives that they have, so they share a common name, giant African snail, with the species Akatina Akatina. So these are actually native to the western parts of Africa, and that one actually is the largest snail in the world. Really? So that one's actually bigger with the largest specimen ever recorded at a length of 39.3 centimeters or 15.5 inches. This species that I'm specifically talking about is actually not the largest of them, but it is the most common one, and it was the one I could find the most information on. So that's why I picked this one Okay. instead of the bigger one. So I'm going to kind of launch right into it. I'm going to start with their effectiveness, their physical adaptations. I give them an 8 out of 10. Okay. It's a good snail. It's pretty good as far as snails go. So these snails are hardy. They can survive a pretty wide range of environments. They're herbivores, so they eat a wide variety of plant matter. It could be alive. It could be dead. They aren't particularly picky. They just like to eat plants. All right. You give them a good leaf, they are on it. Munch. Love a good leaf. They have also been observed exhibiting some omnivorous behaviors, eating fungi, lichens, or even other snails. Huh. Yeah. But they don't prefer that. They would definitely pick a leaf over another snail, but it's just been observed that they have <laughs> they have strayed from the vegetarian path on Man, occasion. That would be the least interesting hunting chase. <laughs> oh my god. Can you imagine? Can you Okay, I want you to picture this. It's like a BBC documentary and it's got the dramatic music playing. It's like got the like fast drums and everything and it's like got the tense music and it's just two snails. <laughs> this is not actually slow motion. <laughs> This is real time. And the scene lasts for like 45 minutes. (laughs) But it's 45 minutes of like intense drums and... (laughs) Oh, had to change the camera battery there. All right, we're back. Just to say, that's not what they prefer to eat, but it's been observed. Anyway, so I want to talk about how snails eat food. Because... 
I've seen a lot of pictures of snails eating food because it's really cute because mm-hmm. they have just a teeny little mouth yeah. right where you would expect their mouth to be, right? Sure. It's like right beneath their eyes, I suppose. So they eat food with a tongue-like structure called a radula. Okay. This is essentially a bristle pad that is comprised of tons and tons of these tiny tooth-like ridges. Some sources called them teeth, but then others said, well, they're kind of like teeth, but they're not really teeth. I don't know. I'm not going to be the gatekeeper of what we consider teeth and what we don't, (laughs) but they're tooth-like ridges, and these tear and grind up the plant matter in order to pass it along into the digestive system. So just like teeth, right? It's kind of like chewing. Tongue. Yeah, it's like a toothed tongue <laughs> that they use to chew the food before they swallow it. Hey, Mr. Owl. <laughs> <laughs> How many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop? Are you a giant African land snail? <laughs> One. <laughs> yeah. So that was I found that interesting because I have seen pictures of them eating, but I'd never seen it up close. So I didn't really know how their mouth worked. So just in case you ever wondered. I kind of want to see that under like a microscope or it's, something. It's pretty cool. Well, some of them look different. So some of them look like spiky. Some of them look kind of like a cat's tongue. You know how they're mm-hmm. kind of barbed. But then some of them look a little bit more like they have these wavy ridges. Like, have you ever seen the hard palate inside of a person's mouth? How yeah. It has these wavy bumps in it. Uh-huh. Some of them look kind of more like that. So it varies from species to species with the radula can look like neat but yeah i just thought it was pretty interesting for sure so their digestive system as well as all of their vital internal organs are tucked inside of their shell so the part of the body that you're seeing on the outside that's visible to us is just one big muscle it's commonly called the foot of the a snail, this is where they get their name gastropod. Mm-hmm. It's a stomach foot. They have a so gastro meaning stomach and pod meaning foot mm-hmm. that they mm-hmm. walk around on their stomach. It's just one big muscle foot. And it's pretty cool to watch too. It's it's kinda like how you talk about the cuttlefish, how it all like ripples oh, to, okay, to move okay. the snail forward. Yeah, yeah. It's kinda yeah. neat to watch, I think so at least. Now snails cannot hear sounds at all. Okay. They just can't hear. So they rely instead on sight as well as smell, which they perceive with the small tentacles beneath their eye stalks. So you know how a snail has two long tentacles at the top that have their eyes on the end? Yeah. And then beneath it is these two little tentacles that stick out to the side. Yes, yes. So that's what they use to feel around and also to to pick up smells. Okay. Yeah, they they smell better than they can see. Yeah, because it seems like those eyes must be pretty simple, right? Yeah, I don't think they see very good. Okay. I mean, so I I felt like not being able to hear sounds at all and having pretty poor perception in general was a deduction from their effectiveness. But then I thought about it, and it's like even if they could hear predators coming, it's not like they could run away, right? Like they can't <laughs> they can't run. You know, they're they're moving so slowly, it wouldn't really help them anyway. So really, their only method of defense is their shell. So this big hard shell protecting all of their organs and stuff and they can withdraw inside of that shell Mm -hmm. and seal themselves up so that's a pretty decent strategy especially once they get to their full size right once they get to their full size and that's like you're talking eight inches of just solid armor you're probably going to be okay but you have to make it that far right like when you're a baby and you're a little teeny tiny little snail then you're easy pickings yeah yeah although i wonder if any 
like big predators would try to mess with them. I saw that they can be preyed on by some larger mammals, mm. but I saw that wild pigs like to eat these. Yeah. So I, I admittedly am not very knowledgeable in as to what parts of Africa certain animals are in. I guess what I was thinking of maybe hyenas. I don't think a hyena would eat this. It has the jaw strength for it, I think. I mean, they have the jaw strength for whatever they want, really. <laughs> they will chew through space and time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think a hyena would eat a snail because, I don't know, because I said so. <laughs> Do people eat these snails? Yes, but I'll talk about okay. what, later why you should not do that unless you have cooked it thoroughly first. Ah. Don't eat them raw. You're not going to want to eat these as like escargot on your plate. I don't think escargot is raw. Is it? You would so. know better than me. It's not. It's basically boiled in butter. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> Delicious. So, so nasty. Oh, and their shell is cone-shaped. Rather than being sort of, um, how would you describe it? Gary from SpongeBob. <laughs> Gary shape. You know how it's like kind of like a flat disc yeah, shaped almost? like a garden snail. Yeah, theirs is more cone. Yeah, and you usually see that shape in aquatic snails, right? So that shell is also typically brown colored, mm -hmm. and that blends them in with dead leaves, soil, things around where they're going to be hanging out typically. But I did see some pictures of albino ones. Okay. Which I thought was weird because I hadn't thought of there being albino snails before. Sure. That was not even a concept well, that just, had ever been in my brain. I mean, and I was like, like, oh my gosh, there's albino snails. I mean, just the concept of albinism and invertebrates in general, right? It's surprising to me. I was like, <laughs> I had never put those two concepts together in my brain. But huh. okay, yeah, I saw pictures of albino snails. And I thought that was cool. So the thick, slimy mucus that they secrete is important because it allows them to move over rough and jagged surfaces like tree bark or something like that or, or rocks without damaging their soft underbelly. Oh. So that, that mucus is really thick and it fills in gaps and reduces friction. Huh. Yeah. It's, it's like a protective measure that they use. That's cool. Yeah, I thought that was neat. So like all other land snails, giant African snails are not individually male or female. Really? Each snail has both male and female organs. Okay. But they cannot fertilize their own eggs. So they still have to mate with another snail. So when this happens, whichever snail is the larger of the two takes on the role of a male. Hmm. And the one that is smaller takes on the role of a female. When this happens, they can lay up to 500 eggs per clutch. Wow. That's very many. It's not as many as 4,000, right? I wish you hadn't hyped up the 4,000 babies of the cuttlefish because then this would seem way more impressive. Yeah, this is this is the only category the cuttlefish is outperforming it in. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, <laughs> sir. <laughs> Listen, uh. the snail is doing its best. Um, and they have a clutch of these 500 eggs, up to 500 eggs. Sure. They have a clutch every two to three months. Wow. So this is actually one category <laughs> that they kind of have on the cuttlefish, right? Other than just the one and done of the cuttlefish, they're having a ton of babies. <laughs> so that's their effectiveness. They're pretty good snails. For ingenuity, I'm actually giving this one a 6 out of 10. Okay. Which I don't think I expected. I expected it to be like a 1 or a 2 because sure. it's a snail. 
But then I had to confront my own biases. <laughs> <laughs> so this, these snails are nocturnal. They hide from heat and predators during the day by burying themselves in mm. the soil. So they actually dig underground and completely bury it into the ground and hide until nighttime. Interesting. So when temperatures get too cold, they can enter this slowed down state called estivation, Hmm. where they seal themselves up with mucus inside of their shell and basically take a great big nap until to conserve energy until temperatures increase back into a preferable range for them. Hmm. Snails also communicate with each other for mating purposes. So this snail is is totally solitary and doesn't like to hang out with other snails, but they do actually communicate with each other to mate with courtship interactions where their body language cues to each other whether the snail is initiating courtship and also whether that snail is receptive of the courtship. Whoa. Yeah. So different things like the way that they hold their head, the way that their tentacles on their head are being held, and they they have this own little body language that they understand that they're communicating to each other with. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't expect that level of like interaction between them. And they are selective, right? Like they oh. won't just mate with whatever snail comes their way. They're kind of choosy about it. Sometimes they'll be like, mm, I don't think so. That's got to be just devastating. Yeah. Like, <laughs> oh, geez, it took me 24 hours to get over here from three meters away. <laughs> A crushing blow. <laughs> I'm just, just going to bury myself in this dirt, if you don't mind. <laughs> I, too, bury myself in the soil upon any rejection. <laughs> yeah, so I I found that I had assumed that being a snail, it was unintelligent. And I was mistaken. because So although the brains of snails are very simple compared to those of either vertebrates or even other more complex mollusks, right? Like octopus and and cuttlefish and stuff like that. Their brains are very simple. They have very few neurons. Sure. But there have been studies investigating the learning and memory capacity of snails. And they've actually been shown to be capable of associative learning. Okay. Yeah. So I found two in particular that I thought were really interesting. The first one was a study in 1974 on wild garden snails, Helix aspersa. They placed garden snails at the base of a rod, which the snail would climb. Once the snail reached the top of the rod, it would trigger an electric shock. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. So after repeated trials, some of the snails actually learned to turn around and avoid the top of the rod. Huh. Yeah, so they would turn around and climb back down the rod to avoid the shock at the end. I'm, I'm guessing the this, this shock was not fatal then. No, it was like <laughs> a very mild little... And it was something that would not, wouldn't even knock the snail off the oh, rod, okay. right? Like, it was, it was just unpleasant. Okay. So, but it was interesting because some of them learned how to avoid the shock, but some of them didn't. Oh. Yeah. So there was some variation between individuals of like some were a little bit better at learning and remembering than others. And then there was another study that I thought was cool. It was a 2012 study also on garden snails. So in this one, the researchers trained the snails to anticipate a food reward associated with an odor signal. 
So they would expose the snail to a, an aroma chemical and then give them a treat, essentially, Aww. for it, and then would observe their responses and then would find that when they would expose the snail to the same smell later, they would start to like get excited for the treat, <laughs> right? Like they would start to... I want to see excitement in a snail. <laughs> it was essentially a Pavlovian response. But since they can't hear, you can't associate a sound with a treat so it was cool how they had to kind of be like hmm, what is a snail going to respond to yeah what can the snail perceive i mean it makes sense right to use the, the one sense that they are best at yeah because i think a lot of times intelligence tests for animals rely on things that are not necessarily their strengths or mm -hmm. things that they wouldn't have to use things that are not biologically appropriate for them so i'm always interested to see how they measure how they develop tests for intelligence in animals that are playing to that animal strength yeah so i i thought that was really cool and they could remember later on like when they retested the snail like a week later they would test it and it would have the same response so it remembered hmm yeah, wow. that's a lot more complicated than you would expect from a garden snail. Yeah. Having so few neurons. Like, it doesn't have a, a brain as you would think of one. It's kind of like a clumping of nerves, right? Mm -hmm. It's like just a densely concentrated area of nerves in this one place in their head. So it's not a brain like you or I would think of one. But, I mean, it's efficiency, right? Like, yeah. few neurons, but boy, are they putting in the work. <laughs> oh, and that study was called... Associative Learning Phenomena in the Snail, Helix Aspersa, Conditioned Inhibition by Felix Aceves, Patricia Solar, Joaquin Morris, and Ignacio Loy. Very good. Yeah. Oh, and I forgot to mention it, but the first study, um, that study was called Learning in the Land Snail, Helix Aspersa by R.K. Siegel and M.E. Jarvik. All right. So that wraps up my ingenuity. I gave them a six out of 10. Even though those studies were on garden snails, I think that they made me feel like I didn't need to assume that snails are not very smart. Sure. It made me kind of challenge the way that I had assumed <laughs> they were. So that brings me to aesthetics for the giant African land snail. I gave them a seven out of 10. They're pretty cute. They're okay. pretty cute. The eye stalks, you know, they're a little bit dopey looking, I guess, because they're, you know, wonky, like pointing in all these different directions. I think they're cute. Well, I, I assume this snail does it, but a lot of snails, if something gets close to their eye stalks, they kind of retract it in. Yeah, they're right. like, ooh, I don't like it. <laughs> so the little tentacles beneath their eyes also look like whiskers, and I do yeah. love that. Yeah, you're right. That's great to me. So it's it's also really adorable when they munch on a leaf. Like, have you seen one eating? It's really cute. I don't know what it is. I think it's the way they kind of like wrap their whole mouth. <laughs> like they kind of wrap their face around it. And this is this is incredible. In quiet enough conditions, you can hear the crunch on the leaf <laughs> because it's these little like hardened teeth like structures yeah. in their mouth that are crunching up the plant matter so you can hear them like <laughs> i hope there's a snail asmr video oh, no <laughs> would you hold one of these snails would i personally hold one of these snails yes that is a fantastic question no no i don't think i would i would I might. Just I don't know. Stick it on my arm. 
it, that's like when you see pictures of people handling these, that's essentially what they're doing. They just <laughs> plopped them down. It's like they're holding an infant, right? They're just <laughs> cradling them in on their arm. I don't think I would just because that seems, no, I don't think I would do that. Is it the mucus? I think it's the mucus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so the spiral shape and the brown stripes of the shell is pretty pleasing, but the foot is is slimy and brown, and it looks like a big wrinkly booger, so I can't give them <laughs> too many points for that. I can't give them too many for their aesthetics, so. Poor snail. Sorry. I, it's a seven. That's a passing grade. <laughs> You're right. They're okay. They're kind of cute. So miscellaneous information for this snail. Due to their high reproductive rates, adaptability to diverse climates, and their accommodating diet, which is to say that they will eat just about anything, the giant African land snail is a very successful invasive species. Considered one of the most invasive species in the world. I think it was considered the most land-damaging mollusk really? in the world. Okay. Like the one that is doing the most damage on land. It can be found in tropical and temperate areas pretty much all over the world where it has been introduced by coming in on imported plants. And due to their large size, once they reach adulthood, they have pretty few predators. So their exponential population growth goes pretty much unchecked. Yeah. And then once they've established a breeding population, this bottomless appetite that they have, right? They're huge. They have to be constantly eating. Mm Mm-hmm causes extensive damage to crops and agriculture wherever they go. Huh. Yeah. It is actually illegal to keep them as pets or even to import them in the United States. Wow. If you are caught with one, you are in big trouble. Huh. And if you see one, you're supposed to report it to your like Fish and Wildlife Commission so that they can deal with it. I wonder how fast they come out for those. They probably don't need to come out that fast. <laughs> Like, we've got plenty of time, (laughs) y'all. It is a bad idea to keep them anyway. You don't really want to because their mucus can carry a parasite that causes meningitis in humans. Which goes back to when you asked earlier about eating them. Oh. This is why you don't want to eat them. You could get meningitis. It's a it's a parasite that they can carry on them in their mucus. Uh So it's thought that, like, if you cook them properly... You could kill off anything that would be living on them, and they would essentially be okay to eat. But it's just not a good idea to keep them around if you don't have to. Now, what is meningitis? I don't actually know what it does. It is an inflammation in your brain. Oh, Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, that sounds right. It's bad. You don't want it. My last cute little tidbit about the giant African land snail is that sometimes hermit crabs use their shells as a house. That's so cool. It's very good. It's really cute. I'm I'm assuming smaller shells. Hermit crabs can get big. To fit a full-grown one of these? I bet they could. Have you ever seen like a full-size hermit crab? They're huge. Maybe not. They can get to like the size of a basketball. Whoa. Yeah, they're really cool. So that's the giant African land snail, the clearly inferior mollusk. <laughs> you brought such heat during the first segment. It no, really no, no. made my snail look like garbage. No, no. Our fans brought the heat. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we were going to have so much fun. I thought this was going to be evenly matched. I was so sorely mistaken. <laughs> Uh, I have a couple of audience responses I'd like to share. Okay. It's been 40,000 years since Ah. we did audience responses, and I have two. First one was shared by Julie Gilson in response to our episode about the European eel. 
Julie said, first of all, before this episode, I had no idea the European eel was a thing. I guess it makes sense that eels live everywhere, but I just never thought of them living in Europe for even part of their lives. Finding out that they had so much historical significance was really interesting, and of course their life cycle is incredible. I ended up looking up a video that explains it visually afterwards to get her a better idea of it, to find out that this super fascinating creature that I'd never heard of before was critically endangered was really saddening. I looked up what types of eel are used in sushi, and there are apparently three types, with the European eel being one of them. I've decided to stop ordering eel in sushi from now on, partly for conservation efforts and partly because I don't want to be ingesting cocaine (laughs) and other drugs accidentally, (laughs) because I talked about how sometimes eels get cocaine in them. (laughs) She said, I imagine the eel having very absorbent skin, so the part about that made a lot of sense to me. And she also included a list of other endangered species to avoid for anyone who is interested. And that list was from greenpeace.org. And the second response that I wanted to share was from Megan Inez Clark in response to our episode on the desert kangaroo rat. Ooh. Yeah. So Megan said, story time. When I was 15, my mom took me and my sister and her girlfriend on a month-long road trip across the United States. We started in Jacksonville and went up the East Coast and then across the Midwest, then down through Utah and Nevada and California before coming back across the Southern States. While on the trip, I got to see a lot of cool stuff, including the Luna Moth in North Carolina Mm -hmm. from from the episode previous to the Kangaroo Rat episode, Mm -hmm. and the pandas at the San Diego Zoo also got to see bears, moose, deer, prairie dogs, snakes and lots of bugs and butterflies that we don't get in Florida. However, when in the Badlands of South Dakota, my sister and I saw these little dudes that we unknowingly thought were chinchillas running along the rock formations. Mm -hmm. We jumped out of the car and chased them around and tried to catch them. Wasn't smart in hindsight, but they were so, so, so cute. I knew they weren't actually chinchillas because of the internet, but I never knew what they actually were until I listened to the kangaroo rat episode. They were so, so, so sweet and would come near us, but if we tried to touch them, they would run up the rock formations and hide (laughs) in little holes. I loved their little hops. Oh, So thank you for finally answering a very long unanswered mystery. (laughs) How cute. The kangaroo rat. See, we're we're bringing friends together. (laughs) We're solving mysteries. Detective Weatherford's on the case. I'm I'm enjoying the uh, the image of these little things just hopping away. Like, Hop away, go go go. That's what they do. Because remember how we talked about yeah. like they don't crawl or anything; they just hop. Yeah, it's great. They're very good. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening to our show and sticking with us. You guys are really delightful and I love all of you. You can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram just by searching the title of the show. If you haven't already, you should really either follow us on Twitter or join our Facebook group. Both would be great, but either one because those are where our species polls are going up for the episodes. So if you want to have a say in which species we talk about each week, you can join the voting process there. If you have an animal species you want to hear us talk about, you can submit those to me. My email address is ellen at justthezooofus.com. A transcript of this episode and previous episodes will be found at www.justthezooofus.com. And finally, we'd like to thank Louis Zong for allowing us to use his song Adventuring off of his album B-Sides. Yes, thank you so much. 
And please come join our heat-throwing debate around the animal poles. It's gotten pretty intense. In the past, and it will no longer because I'm going to be ruling the poles with an iron fist. No open options? Never again. Never again. Oh, boy. (laughs) Well, if you've made it this far into the episode, you are a real true friend, real soldier. Goodbye. (laughs) I love you. (laughs) Bye. Bye.